This is The Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our mission is to bring actionable insights and inspirational examples of how to tap deeper into your potential and ignite the flame within you to truly create a remarkable life on your terms. On today's show, we're speaking with Dr. Stan Beecham. Dr. Stan is a sports psychology consultant and director and founding member of the Leadership Resource Center in Atlanta, Georgia. His breakthrough work with collegiate, Olympic, and professional athletes from many sports has afforded him an insight into the minds of great competitors that only a few have had the good fortune to gain. What I appreciate most about Dr. Stan is how quickly he gets to the truth and calls it tight to enable people to realize they are capable of so much more and unlocks the mindsets, beliefs, and self-perceptions that hold us back. Much of his wisdom can be found in his great book, Elite Minds, How Winners Think Differently to Create a Competitive Edge and Maximize Success. Dr. Stan, it's a great honor to spend time with you today. Welcome to the Ignition Show. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you inviting me, and I'm looking forward to the conversation that we're about to have. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And, you know, I understand it's been your life's journey. You described your life's journey to understand why such a small percentage of us human beings function at our full potential, really, truly achieve our potential, and most don't. Mm-hmm. I'm right. curious, maybe I'll just to set the scene for our conversation why did that become your journey? What experiences or influences put you on this path? Well, I, um, so when I was a kid growing up, my father was a psychiatrist and, and I spent a lot of time with him and some other folks that he worked with. And I remember as a young kid kind of, you know, sitting in the, the fringes of the room while they were talking shop or, you know, my father might be on the phone with one of his patients and I would be in the other room. And it, even though I couldn't hear what the other person was saying, I could hear my father talking to this person who I never knew who they were. But I, I remember it was pretty clear to me that he was on the phone with some people that were in pretty bad shape, you know. And um, I got really curious about why is it that some people, you know, are doing really well in this world and other people are just struggling to kind of go day to day? So that was just life in general. And then when I became an athlete, it became pretty clear to me that there were some athletes that were just amazingly physically talented. But then there are other athletes that weren't that talented, but they seemed to do really well or they seemed to do well in pressure pretty well. And so I really started getting curious about that. You know, why is it that essentially people with equal ability will have very different outcomes, if you will? And of course, what I learned is, is that, you know, your physical skill and ability, that's only a piece of it. But, uh, you know, essentially your, your brain controls everything that your body does, right? And so your brain is a, you know, is a, is, is a physical entity, but also then there's this part of the brain that, let's call it the mind, for the lack of a better word. And the mind is really, and as I put it together, you know, your thoughts and your emotions. And so how a person thinks, what a person believes is true about themselves and others, as well as the emotional response that we have to the world has a huge impact in what we do, right? And so in sport and business, what we do, we call that performance, um, you know, but the how we behave. And so 
I got really curious into trying to understand the people that were doing really well, what was different about them from the rest of us. Hmm. But to answer your question, I, I'm just, you know, I think as a kid, I always paid attention to other people and what they did and how they behaved. You know, some people were interested in, you know, model cars or, you know, you know, fixing gadgets. You know, I had a couple of cousins like that, right? They always had a bicycle or a motorcycle that they were taking apart and putting back together. I was just always really interested in people and why people did what they did. Hmm. And what do you find, um, you've been doing this for quite a while now, yeah. what do you find most captivating? What keeps you engaged, uh, fascinated, curious about the mind? Well, just the, the limitlessness to it. Is that a word? Limitless. Yeah. It's yeah, limitless. It. Yeah. So, I mean, just the, the, the capability and the potential. And, you know, with human beings, once you think you've seen everything, right, then, you know, something else pops up. And so the fact that there is, you know, it's kind of like space, right? There's no end to it. It keeps going. And I think when it comes to human beings and why we do what we do or what we're capable of doing, you know, the fact of the matter is there's still frontiers out in front of us that we haven't gotten to. I mean, we're learning more and more and more about the physical aspect of the brain, but still, you know, there's just so much to learn. Uh, and I think that's really interesting uh, as we learn more about the physical aspect of it, or then the, maybe you want to call it the mind body connection, you know, how our mind and how our bodies engage, how, what we think can actually physically change our biology. Those kinds of things that we're learning now are just absolutely amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise, what, what modern research tells us and continues to educate us on, um, it's always remarkable that it kind of uh, expands the expands the realm of possibility, but also but also focuses on the real truth, the real path to unlocking our own performance and our potential. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people, I'm sure it's been your experience as well that a lot of people, a lot of elite performers or athletes, you know, when they come to someone uh, to help them with their performance, right. often they're looking for you know, specific tactics to overcome challenges, or they're looking for greater insight on how to be better in a certain area. Mm-hmm. But I know one thing that you use at the heart of your work is the, the most fundamental shifts happen by interrogating the, your beliefs, yeah. uh, what an individual holds to be true. And so I guess I, I know we'll have lots to dive into here, but maybe the starting question I would have is when you work with elite performers and you've been had hundreds and and thousands of conversations with elite performers on their beliefs. What are the most common conversations that you have with them? Yeah. So I think about it two ways, right? There's, there's the belief that we have about ourselves, And then there's the belief that we have about what's going to happen in the future. Okay. And, and I try to simplify everything because I find that, if you really want to understand something, you have to break it down into simple pieces. People who have these really elaborate explanations, I found they generally don't understand it or they know a little bit of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so as I dig into this, there are just some simple truths that just get simpler and simpler to me anyway. And, I, and I'll explain to you what I mean. So when it, So we all have a belief about ourselves, right? What we think of ourselves. 
And what I've found is, is that that falls into two primary camps. There's the belief that I'm okay, that I'm good enough, that I'm competent, right? And then there's the belief that I'm not okay, I'm not good enough, I'm not competent. Um, and what I find is that most people, even people that function at high levels, still their fundamental belief about themselves is I'm not good enough yet, okay? There's still something about me that I need to, to fix or to correct. Um, and so because of that, especially in American culture, there's this great obsession with better, with getting better, right? There's the belief that you should never be satisfied, uh, that you're never good enough, that you can always get better and never, never get happy or content with, with where you are, because if you do, you'll become complacent and the competition mm -hmm. will blow past you. Mm -hmm. So not only do we have this belief that I'm not good enough yet, we live in a culture that I think encourages and espouses that belief, right? Don't ever feel too good about yourself, even though it's not said blatantly, that's the under, under current, right? You're, you're making me a flashback to, uh, I used to have a screensaver on my computer back in the late nineties when I was launching, you know, launching into my career and, uh, and launching my business career. Uh, my screensaver simply said, uh, uh, satisfaction is the first step towards mediocrity. And yeah. I look back at the time, I was like, yeah, this is motivating. This is keeping me wanting, I'll give me that edge. But I look back on it like, it's not that I was dissatisfied, but I was never fully happy because I always felt like I should be doing more. So I got exactly. rid of that screensaver, but it's exactly that. Yeah. Right? So my experience is, is the people who believe that they are competent, that they are enough, um, that they essentially have everything they need to go out into the world. When you get to that point, then what you focus on is just doing the best that you can. Right. And so I'll say this to take a take a, a, a professional golfer, a golfer that's on the PGA or LPGA tour. If you were to say to that person, so you're talking the top, you know, 150 or so people in the world. If you say to one of these players, if you go out today and play the best that you will, that you're capable of playing, what will happen? They'll also, oh, I'll win. Right. Which is true. But of course, the other truth is, is that rarely do we play to our best. So once you believe that you're competent, that you are skilled, that you are enough, then the focus is to simply do the best that I can in this situation, which is where I'm trying to lead people to. For the rest of us, the majority of us who don't believe that we're good enough or that we believe that there's something about us that's broken or incomplete, we're obsessed with getting better. And so no matter what we have, no matter what we've done, there's always a sense of I need to get better. And that what drives that obsession with better is a fundamental belief that I'm, you know, I'm not enough or that there's something that's not complete with me. And, uh, and I share with people all the time, you know, the, the word perfect that we use a lot in our language, it actually came in an English language through the Bible where there was a verse that says, be ye perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So those of you who went to Sunday school every week like I had to do. You remember that, but the word perfect came from the Greek word teleus and the Greek word teleus means to be whole or complete. And so really the kind of the commandment is, is to be a whole complete person, which is very different than our definition of being perfect, right? Which is to never mess up. And so I do think that we live in this culture of, a, of, of you know, perfectionism, right? And nothing's ever enough, but that's not really what the intention is. The intention is to be 
the full and complete person that you can be or to grow into your fullness. And that's really where I try to get people to think about is not being a better person, but being a complete person. Being, what does it mean to be fully alive? What does it mean to have full access to all of your resources, both physically and mentally and spiritually? What would that life be like? So in other words, if you're living to your full potential, if you're living your best life, imagine what that looks like. That's where you should be setting your sight. Not so comparing people, yourself to someone else. Yeah, as people fall into those two camps, I, I am okay or I am good enough or I'm not okay enough. Mm -hmm. uh, in looking at it through that lens, just out of curiosity, what, in your experience, what percentage of people would fall into the camp that I, I am good enough? Versus the, the minority. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, even, and what's interesting, Chris, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the average person out on the street today. I'm talking about people that are collegiate, professional, Olympic-level athletes. I'm talking about mm -hmm. people that are C-suite executives and Fortune 500 companies. I'm talking about folks that are doing very well, okay? Uh, and, that they, and unfortunately, many of these people, they go through their whole life never feeling like they are a complete, full, whole person. They have this sense of that something is missing or something isn't developed. And, and I believe something is missing. And what's missing is, is that your fundamental belief about yourself is in error. I mean, mm. think about it this way. I, I have a belief, right? And, and what I believe, uh, it can be accurate or it can be inaccurate, right? So I can have a belief about myself that is accurate, but I can also believe something about myself that's wrong. I mean, we see it all the time with other people, right? Where people believe things and you're like, you know, you know, that's not correct, but this person believes it. Well, I find that many of us have beliefs about ourselves and what we're capable of doing that just simply aren't accurate. Um, and so if your starting point, you know, about yourself, if you're off a little bit, which we all are a little bit, right? I mean, who sees themselves absolutely as they are? You know, very few of us, these distortions of reality that we all have, I mean, that's the essence of our struggle. And of, you know, even mental illness, if you want to go there, I mean, a depressed person, an anxious person is going to distort reality a little bit. Yeah. A psychotic person is going to distort it a lot, right? So we all distort uh, what's truly out there through our own lens and belief system. And of course, the goal should be is to not, you know, not, not distort that very much, to see it as it is. I woke up the other morning and I was thinking about the word ignore and the word ignorance. And I'd never thought of those two words together, right? Because we think of, of a, an ignorant person as someone who's stupid. We think of it in terms of cognitive ability. But when you put ignore and ignorance together, what becomes obvious? That ignorant people do what? Ignorant they, they ignore. They, they, <laughs> they, they ignore what's out there in front of them. In other words, they're missing data. And so part of being not ignorant or being astute is paying attention, right? Um, don't ignore what's in front of you. Uh, and we tend to do that. And our belief system causes that, right? So based upon what I believe about myself and other people, I'm going to see some things and other things I'm simply going to miss because my belief system is going to cause me to miss it. Yeah, and I've heard, I know you talk uh, quite passionately about the fact that we, uh, 
we're all liars. We all fall into self-deception. Again, another way yeah. of talking about the, the, this distortion field that we create. Yeah. What have you seen when you are just in your, in your work, in your journey? What are the, I know you talked about the fundamental beliefs around, um, I, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not capable enough. Uh, what would you say are the biggest lies you've discovered that undermine people's capacity and capability to really tap deeper into their potential? Is it, does, do they all come down to that I'm not good enough? Or maybe if you, if you elevate it up uh, rather than going down to that, that deep core, what are some of the, like, the, the language or the words that you might hear most commonly that if someone's listening to this and catching themselves saying that, that might be a sign they want to do some work on it? Well, I think, I think just the whole process of where my belief system came from. So what I hold to be true about myself and what I hold to be true about the world that I live in, where did I get that? Okay. And, and what I would suggest is for most of us, we adopted someone else's belief system. Yeah. Right. And so we know that happens in the first seven years of life. Right. So who are you hanging out with the first seven years of your life? You need to really go back and get really clear about that because that's whose beliefs, you know, those people, that's whose belief system you have, whether it be one of your parents or an older sibling or, you know, a relative or, but the people that you were around in that first seven years and what they said to you about yourself, whether you're, pretty, ugly, smart, dumb, good enough, not good enough, slow, fast, you know, whatever it is. Because when you're a little kid, you don't know who you are. And so you look to the world to tell you, right? And so if you grew up in an environment where, you know, you're being told that you're a beloved child and, and, uh, and, and that you're a wonderful person with huge potential, then you're likely to accept that as your reality. But if you're told that you're stupid or unlovable or no good, you know, um, then you're likely to adopt that belief system as well. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And, yes. And so, um, you know, the, these first few years of life, I mean, we as psychologists, we've always known that it's important, but uh, we continue to get data that supports that. So essentially think about this way. When you, when you bring a baby into the world, you know, that baby and that baby's brain, that's the hardware, right? And now what you've got to do is you got to download some software into this baby's brain, which is the belief system, right? Well, if you put a software in that has a virus or you put a software in that has, you know, a lot of deficiencies, then, What's going to happen is, is now that that baby, as it grows up to be a child, it's going to have some bugs in the system and it's not going to work. Not That's because right. there's anything wrong with the, the physiology or the brain of the baby. It's just simply that, you know, the software is damaged. And, and we all, I mean, when you think about people that you've been around a lot, you easily see this, right? You have friends that go through life relatively easily. And then you have friends who go through life with tremendous struggle, right? And you see people that, you know, no matter what, they seem to make the best of something. Then you have other friends that no matter what, they find a way to mess it up. Well, there's a reason for all of that. You know, that doesn't just happen. Yeah. And, and most people aren't aware of that. Most people, when they're having a difficult time, they don't understand that they've created it. They have this sense of this, you know, why do bad things always happen to me? What I would suggest is if you really look at the data, we all go through pretty much the same things. We all go through difficulty, um, but the belief system that you had about yourself in the world before that 
is going to impact how you go through the difficulty. You know, I think Buddhists, yeah, I think Buddhists, I was going to say, I think Buddhists said it very clearly, you know, 2,500 years ago when he was putting together his philosophy, which was really with the intention of, of ending or alleviate, alleviating human suffering, suffering. And he said, you know, we suffer not because of what happens to us. We suffer because we don't want that to happen to us, right? Mm. We have a preference about how it should be. And so when the world doesn't meet our preferences, in other words, when things don't go my way, I struggle. When things go my way, I do beautifully. So that's why I tell people all the time, I know what you look like on a good day. You look like the same thing I look like on a good day, right? But what do you look like on a bad day? What do you look like on a day where things aren't going your way? That is the differentiator in humans, okay? Yeah. I've the heard differentiator you describe- is, is how do you struggle? right? When the world is kicking you in the head, how are you struggling? How are you getting through with that? Yeah, I was going to say, I've heard you describe it as the success isn't the absence of failure. It's the response to success is the response to failure. Mm -hmm. But a lot for a lot of people, of course, failure is devastating in some way, whether they're big failures on national TV in the big moment, or whether they're small failures of just, you know, having a bad practice round or whatever it may be. If someone's struggling with a sense of failure right now, they're listening to this and they've been struggling mm-hmm. for a while. What might be the, you know, the first thing you'd get them to do or introduce to them or help them reshape that perspective? Well, to, to first then redefine what, what failure is. So if you, if your view is that failure is a bad thing that should be avoided, right. Or that failure is the universe punishing you for something, then you'll never learn from failure. Right. But if you if you view failure as the universe saying, no, that's not the way, you know, it's another way. In other words, if you view failure simply as feedback, right? Think about it this way. If you were, you know, walking around a house and it was totally pitch dark and you couldn't see anything and you bumped into a wall, what would you do? You wouldn't keep trying to go forward, right? You would turn and take a different route, would you not? Sure but you could argue bumping into the wall at night is failure because it's simply, you know, the wall is saying, no, this is not the way to the, say the bathroom or wherever you're trying to go. If you look at failure as that is just the, the world saying back to you is a, no, that's not going to work right now. Go, go try something else. Then you keep going. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that most people who are struggling in life, they think that people who've had a great success have not failed that much or have not right. failed as much of them. And that's just simply not the case at all. Yeah. I mean, if, if you study closely people who've had great success, you know, the people that we write history books about it, I mean, some of these people have had tremendous failure and disappointment, but what they chose to do is to essentially keep going, right? That they didn't, per- they, in other words, they didn't personalize it. The, the person who struggles with failure is they're personalized it. In other words, their, their message back to themselves is why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. Okay. The answer is, is why it's happening to you is because it happens to all of us and you're a member of the human race. And this is part of the human experience, which is basically things don't go the way you want them to. That is a quintessential human experience, the struggle, the difficulty, the suffering. Another way of thinking about this, Chris, as I tell people all the time is, is, you know, we all pray for, you know, easy, you know, pain-free lives. The reality is, is you do not want your life to be easy because if everything went your way and life really became easy, you would get really bored. That's right. 
you would, you really would. You would, you would get to the point where you hated your life. This is why you see, you know, these super successful people implode. Um, and what I mean by that is the reason that we need life to be difficult because it's the difficulty that makes us continue to grow. And yeah, so what and you really want to do is you want to, you want to experience yourself as constantly growing and developing. And for people who are doing difficult things, it helps them continue to grow and develop and thus become happy, which is essentially where we're trying to get to, right? Where you can call it happiness or peace or contentment, but you get to, you get to this place of happiness by doing difficult things and then succeeding. But you might do the difficult thing three or four times before you succeed. You follow me? I do. And I want to come back to what you mentioned there in your example of walking you know, in a room in the dark in your house, you hit a wall. I yeah. guess the distinction between that and maybe something a little bit more of either higher stakes or more public or just more, as you say, more personal and personalize it is they're really attaching a lot of emotion to it. That if I bump into the wall in the darkness, I'm like, oh, that hurt. But if uh, yeah. I miss the game-winning shot on national TV in the championship match, then that's my whole life is ruined because everyone's going to remember from me flat or whatever story I create. Well, the people so, who don't like you will remember your failure, but the, the people that love and care for you, they'll remember the other parts as well, right? Mm. And, and so was, whose approval do you want? <laughs> yes, yes. And I think on that example, it was... I think it was Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, obviously a lot, a lot with him in the news in, lot in recent months, but old clips showing up in YouTube. And, but I think he talked very eloquently about um, how his focus after a loss or a failure or a misgaming shot right away is, what can I learn from it? And I think one of the myths with elite performers is, is that it's easy for them to kind of look beyond that failure because they've had so much success and he goes right to what can I learn? So he's in the film room that night. He's rewatching the game that night. He's analyzing exactly. and deciding what he's going to do different next time. And I think those that really struggle, even if they are elite performers in many ways, but have this recurring pattern of whether it's being hard on themselves or really being set back from failure. The, the myth isn't that these elite performers are able to do that because they're elite. It's the other way around. They got to be yeah. elite because they but see. Do we this. don't see you don't see that part, right? You don't see no. Kobe Bryant studying film for hours. You know, uh, another kind of similar story was Larry Bird. Some of y'all might be too young to remember <laughs> Larry Bird, but when I was coming along in high school, Larry Bird was, you know, this great basketball player who played at Indiana State and then went on and played at um, for the Celtics, but when the things they talk about Bird, and he wasn't a phenomenal athlete, right? I mean, he didn't look like this gazelle going up and down, but he, he was just a brilliantly smart basketball player and he made really good decisions with the ball. And of course he could shoot really well too. But, you know, they talk about, you know, if Bird had a bad game shooting after the game, he would put his practice clothes on and go back out after the arena empty out and get a manager to, defeating balls and he would shoot till he felt like he kind of got his shot back right mm -hmm. and then when he became the head coach of the indiana pacers I, mean, I remember reading an article one time he said you know these you know these guys go out there and have a bad night and they'll go get in the shower and get dressed and go out and he said i was never capable of doing that i mean there's no way i'm going to take a shower and 
and go out until I, you know, get this thing fixed. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's that kind of commitment and that's kind of work ethic. And so, so what you'll see is when people fail, you'll see one or two responses to failure, right? You'll see the kind of the learned helplessness response, which is to kind of give up, right? And try to act like you just don't care anymore, right? That's a response to failure, right? Is, oh, this is stupid anyway, I don't care. The, the other response to failure is that your level of commitment gets, you know, you essentially you double down on it, right? So that when you fail, it makes you want to try harder, not quit. That is the differentiator. That's the trait that you should be looking for in yourself. And if you run a business, and I do a lot of business consulting now, you know, those are the traits you want to look for in other people is what's your, what's your, what's your failure response? When things don't go your way, what do you do? Do you get mad at other people and yell at them? You know, do you make greater requirements upon yourself, which is what you'd want the answer to be, you know, or do you just go home and, you know, start drinking, you know, what's your, you know, what do you do with that? Because we're all going to have those days. Absolutely. If we swung, if we swung to the other end of the spectrum, I know you, you know, one of your fundamental beliefs is, is operating with the expectation to win or creating that belief that I expect myself right. to win, whatever, right. that, whatever winning may be. Can you just talk to how to do the delicate, the delicate dance of having the expectation and the desire to win yet perhaps detaching from the actual result. Yeah. So, so the expectation to win comes out of the, the belief that you have of yourself. I can't believe that I'm a stupid fool and incompetent and, and expect to do well, right? What's interesting about the way the human mind works is the things that you believe are going to happen, you don't think about, and the things that you're uncertain of, you think about all the time, right? That's how anxiety works. So let me give you an example. If you know that you're going to have all the food that you want to eat today, right? That you can have three meals, four meals, five meals, whatever you want. There's a refrigerator full. You're not going to sit around and think of worry about food, right? But if you haven't eaten in two days, your mind becomes obsessed with food. That's all you think about, right? So when you, so if you take something like sport, when you get to the point where you expect to win or you expect to do well, you quit thinking about the outcome. You quit thinking about the win or loss. And what that allows you to do is think about how I want to play. In other words, what specifically do I need to do when I'm out there playing? You with me? Yep. It's the same, it's the same with money. There are people who've made fortunes, but they rarely think about money. They just think about the tasks that lead to making money. Whereas people who tend to not have much money, they spend a lot of time thinking about, man, I sure wish I had more money. When reality, what you need to be thinking about is how do you, you know, how would you do that, right? You know, like, what could I do to get somebody to pay me? And so that's the whole thing with winning and losing is it's an outcome issue. And, and uh, people that are obsessed with the outcome, there's no mental energy and time to focus on the here and now, which is what do I need to do this very minute? Hmm. And if you believe that, if you believe that your life is going to turn out, then you don't think too much about the future. That's when I was telling you earlier in this. So there's, there's these two fundamental beliefs. There's the belief of self. Am I good enough or not? And then there's the belief of the future, which is, is it going to be okay or not? So people who are really anxious, their belief about the future is it's not going to be okay. So they spend a lot of time thinking about it. People who aren't anxious, people who believe that 
you know, it's all going to work out. They don't spend much time thinking about the future, which frees them up to be in the present, which is what do I need to do now? So not only are they happier and less anxious, they also are more productive. Yeah. Well, and on that note of being productive, I, I've, you know, I do, you and I both do a lot of work in the corporate space and, um, I've come to learn and I often say this to groups that I believe one of the most fundamental skills in business now in this age of digital notifications, speed of information, device addiction, et cetera, is focus. It's, 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 you know, 20 years ago, it might've been some of something you do. You go in there, you focus on certain things, but now it is a skill that people need because we are pretty weak when we have all these distractions and, and things coming away. What does focus really mean to you? What does that, as a, as a practice, as a skill, how do you do, talk about it? How do you describe it? And how do you develop it? I think of kind of the ability to focus being at one end of the spectrum and, and distraction at the other. And so what I find is, is that when we as humans are distracted or not focused, we don't do very well. And when we're not distracted and we're able to focus our attention on something or someone, we do quite well. And so, for example, when I'm working with a professional golfer, uh, one of the things that I really focus on with them is what are the things that can cause distraction, okay? Playing well can cause a distraction. Playing poorly, right? Hitting a good shot can actually be distracting because you think about it. You know, hitting a bad shot can be a distraction because you continue to think about it. And so really what I'm, I'm teaching you know, an elite level golfer is, is how to manage distraction. And so you're going to always have distracting thoughts and you have to, you have to catch yourself early on doing it and then develop a system of essentially eliminating that distracting thought, bringing you back, bringing yourself back to the present. But the, the, for most people, the, the primary distracting thing that they have is their own thought process, right? Mm -hmm. And so really what we're talking about is how do you, how do you discipline and manage your own mind? And you, and you have to, you have, you, you know, you can't read a book to do that. You actually have to spend time and meditation is the primary one. And there's a number of other little things that you can do, but um, teaching your mind to focus on something and to not take that focus off. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing around this. So back in February, I did a, a 10 day silent meditation called Vipassana yep, meditation, yep. which is the meditation that the Buddha taught. And it was a 10 day, you know, silent meditation. You couldn't talk to the other people. You couldn't read, you couldn't bring your phone, no distraction in the first three days. And we meditated 10 hours a day. The first three days, we just observed the air coming in and out of our nostrils. And what's interesting is, how incredibly difficult that is to do. You can do it for, you know, a short while, but then what happens is a thought pops in and then you just have to bring yourself back. And it's, and, and so it literally takes, you know, months and years to get your mind to the point where you can just observe your breathing. In other words, how do you teach yourself to stop thinking? And most people I've had a few never... friends have gone through that process for yeah. you, for you, Dr. Stan, what was, uh, what was the experience like versus what you thought it was going to be like? Well, there were parts of it that were, um, actually reassuring and comforting. And, uh, I'm, 
I'm, I'm 58 years of age, so I'm now pretty comfortable with being alone. I spend a good bit of time alone now. And um, so just knowing that I can, you know, be my myself day after day after day and be okay and not lose my mind. There are a number of people who leave in the middle of it about, we had about 60 guys and I'd say about 15 of them didn't make it till the end. So just the ability to sit and be present with yourself, which is really important. Um, and, and knowing that I can do that, you know, that I can deal with my own crazy mind and not let it, you know, rattle me in that for the most part, I can focus my mind where I need to. Right. Hmm. Uh, so just, um, when you begin to have control over your own mind, it's very reassuring. I think it's the most important thing we should try to develop actually um, more so than any, any other skill set. Um, but, but just, just that and um, just the simplicity of life that one of the things I've learned is, is what I'm actually trying to do from a being successful standpoint is actually to simplify my life. And so I have, fewer possessions and fewer things than I've ever had. And, but yet my joy is higher than it's ever had. And so I continue to think about that of how do I simplify my life? Um, Was that a surprising outcome from that experience for you? That, that, that simplification leads to more joy. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's very, you know, anti-American. I mean, we're a consumer culture, right? And so most people, if you said, what do you want? They would list a, a physical material thing, right? Like I'd like a new car or a new TV or new computer. But, you know, I don't think many people would say what I want is a quieter mind, right? Mm -hmm. Or what I want is the ability to, to want what I have. You know, you've heard that definition of happiness is wanting what you have. Yes. And unhappiness is, is wanting what you don't have. I think there's great truth to that. Yes. But because um, we have, you know, if you think about all the all the advertising that you see on TV, the, the message is the same. If you have this product or this service, you're going to be happier. That's right? right. And until you get or then if you have it now, we have a better version of it. Right. It's the new and improved version. So, you know, I mean, currently I have an iPhone six. Right. And I don't know what number they're on now, but they've gone past 10, haven't they? They have. Yes. But, <laughs> You know, and so, you know, every now and then, like, especially young kids go like, oh, that's a six, isn't it? You know, like I'm driving a 45 Chevy or something. And it's just so funny because it's just so important for some people to have the. That's right. You know. Sounds the, like perspective the, really. Uh, yeah. Just really, really reinforce some key perspectives for, for you uh, in, that, yeah. in that 10 day experience. I, I want to come back also to, you know, if someone really wanted to develop the skill of focus, whether that was for athletic performance or for business performance, you're just being more present in the moment. You mentioned meditation, but if we kind of dove into and kind of peel back the layers of the onion, got really into a very specific you know, tool or app or practice around that, what are some of the go-to ones that you find have been most helpful for the people you've worked with or even for yourself? But if you had to give some real, real practical suggestion, what's the process there that works for you? Yeah, so the meditation, right, which is is sitting still, and then there are there are a number of what I would call movement meditations, which would be any repeated, you know, like Tai Chi, uh, a lot of the yogas, right, where you're going through a 
it's not like tennis, right? Where you have to pay attention and chase a ball down. When I talk about these movement meditations, I'm talking about you go through a series of movements in order over and over again, right? It's repetitive, which allows the mind to quiet and you can focus on the sensation of the body. All of those are beautiful. So exercises like running, swimming, pedaling a bike, uh, you know, any of that kind of stuff can be really, you know, helpful for the mind. And, and I've done these things throughout my life, you know, going walking and walking, you know, for long periods of time. So endurance sports um, where you're challenging yourself physically so that your mind can relax. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think we need to physically exercise is not because our bodies need it, but our minds need it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, cooking, I cook a lot and, uh, the process of going to the store and buying food and bringing home, preparing it and cooking and cleaning it. All of that is very repetitive to me now, you know, sharpening a knife is one of the most satisfying things I do <laughs> and I've gotten really good at it. So when I go to people's houses, you know, and I start sharpening their knives, you know, they're generally pretty happy. Like, what are you doing? Like, I'm sharpening your knife. Like, oh, great. Because I can get into that repetitive pattern and focus of sharpening a knife and just be in a really zinned out place, right? Yes, so, yes. yeah, I'm sharpening the knife. But what I'm really doing is I'm sharpening my mind as well. But I don't get into all that with them. I just say, well, I like to sharpen knives. But what I'm saying is there's a reason I like to sharpen knives. Because it takes focus, uh, you know riding a motorcycle on the road, which is something I do that a lot of people say you're crazy. One of the things that I love about riding a motorcycle on the road is it takes every ounce of your concentration. And if you lose your concentration for a moment, that might be it, mm. you know, and I know that. And every time I get on that motorcycle, I, I think to myself, if you don't pay attention, you're going to be dead. And, um, and it's not that I'm afraid, but my mind is really hyper alert and I find it to be really, um, I left, I left Atlanta three weeks ago and I rode my motorcycle across the country. I'm in, I'm in uh, California now, uh, with some friends for a period of time, but I just finished riding the, riding my motorcycle across country. And it's just, you know, you get out in some of these areas where there's no one on the road, you know, and it goes on and on and on for a while. And it's just, I mean, it's like being in a great meditative state. It's really quite, quite wonderful. You know, and, um, but I love doing stuff like that. Um, and, and so for those of you that sit in front of the TV a lot or need to be entertained by music or a book, just set it down and go for a walk, but don't put the headphones on, you know, just listen to the world around you or go for a run and don't distract yourself with music. Just listen to the sound of your feet striking the road those kinds of things are really, really helpful in, in keeping your mind sharp and strong and sane. Well, it's actually a good segue because I also wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, you talk about the, the fundamental importance of beliefs and there are uh -huh. very much times we need to interrogate some of these old beliefs and, and, you know, reshape our beliefs or establish new beliefs to get us to where we want to go. And I love what you said that the litmus test to know whether you're changing a belief or not is that you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, if, if, if I have a belief about myself or something, um, and I, and I 
start to challenge that in that initial phase, there's this thing of uncomfortable. I mean, one of the reasons why you're going to challenge a belief is because you're beginning to see that it's not true, right? So being wrong about yourself or the world is generally not a pleasant experience. It's an uncomfortable experience. But out of that uncomfortableness of, of realizing, hey, something's not right here or something's not right with me, out of that uncomfort becomes, you know, the inquisitiveness or I love the way you said it, the interrogation process begins, right? Where, you know, you know, I ask people, you know, what do you know for truth for, you know, for certain and, and how do you know that for certain? And and what you'll find out if you really play that game out is, is that I know very little for certain. In fact, what I know is I don't know very much. Now, the question is, is can I be at peace with that? And the answer is yes, because I realize, guess what? Everybody else doesn't know that much either, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, think about this coronavirus or what we know, what we don't know, or just the differences and beliefs that people have about it. I mean, it's yes. all over the place, right? Yes. Um, there are people who've been saying for weeks that this thing is over and there's people who are saying it's never going to be over. And these are quote experts in the field on both sides of it. So, you know, getting comfortable with the fact that I, that, you know, I don't know everything, nor will I ever know everything. And the other truth is, is that I, I don't control very much. Maybe I can control my mind to some extent, but outside of that, I'm in control of nothing. Right. And so how do you get, at peace with the fact that you're not in control and mm -hmm. and that's the secret right is accepting that you, you're not running the show um, yeah and you had mentioned earlier that there's the you know people are certainly falling into a couple of different camps as even as it relates to this coronavirus situation yeah yeah um, again for you know we're all living through it what's what's your perspective or what's the what do you think are the keys for people to kind of stay grounded or, or stay, uh, you know, stay focused on the right things yeah. at those times. Yeah. So for me personally, I've, I haven't watched the news in I'd say two weeks now. Uh, every now and then I'll read a little something about it, but I don't, um, I don't pay much attention to the coronavirus news. Uh, I'll keep up with the, you know, with the financial markets a little bit, but I know that it's, you know, it's a roller coaster ride, right? Uh, yeah. And so I don't put a lot of energy into that. Um, so I don't take in, I'm not a news junkie, and a lot of people my age are news junkies. You know, they sit in front of the TV for hours. Um, but you're not going to do anything with that information. So that's my whole thing is why take in all this information if you're not going to do it? Or, or people watch the news for a couple hours and they can't go to sleep because they're worried, right? That's right. So, um, I, so, so I don't take in a lot of kind of new, and I, but I've been doing that for years. Um, and instead I, you know, read other things that I think would be helpful. Um, you know, or watch TV shows that are, you know, you know, documentaries or, you know, biographies and that kind of stuff. I find that to be much more helpful than new. So in other words, having a filter of what kind of information that you let in, right? Yeah. Uh, but what I have found specifically with this coronavirus, other than the fact that people become addicted to the daily news of it, uh, is I see two camps or two teams developing. And, and one is I call Team Hope and the other is I call Team Fear. And what's interesting is, so the Team Hope are the people who are basically saying, 
you know, we're in a good place. It's time to kind of get our lives back together again. And they don't really believe that, um, you know, they're going to get sick or that if they do, they're going to, you know, it's going to be a terrible thing. And, uh, and they're really thinking about, you know, wanting to, you know, get back to work and get things going. The, the t- team fear is they believe that not only has this thing been bad, but it's going to continue to be bad, right? And may in fact get worse. Um, and, uh, you know, these are the people that are, you know, wearing masks in their own houses. And uh, I'm in California now and there's a lot of mask wearing going on. Of course, they're asking you to do it. But, uh, you know, I see people, you know, you know, out by themselves wearing a mask, which I have a hard time really understanding, you know, what, what the deal is. But people are afraid and they're afraid of getting this virus and they're afraid of dying and, 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 and they're afraid of going back to work. And so when, when people are able to go back to work, there's going to be a number of people who aren't going to do it because they're going to be afraid. And so, you know, a lot of the people on Team Fear have had a lot of anxiety anyway. And now this is really, uh, you know, really a difficult time but what what i'm getting to is and i'm not i'm not trying to you know the people that are fearful or even cautious i'm not trying to give them a hard time but what's happening is you have these 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 two groups if you will and now they're criticizing each other in the same way that republicans and democrats would right and so the hopeful people are telling the fearful people you guys are crazy and the fearful people are telling the hopeful people you guys are crazy it's this is too soon too fast and so here we go, right? And uh, and and both people have the beliefs that they have because of the information that they've taken in. So that's the other thing that's interesting to me. And I've read a good bit of the scientific stuff on this virus and the flu. And you know, today's what the twenty seventh. And yep. so, you know, as of the the twenty seventh of April, we've had less people die of of the coronavirus than we had of the flu last year. That's an interesting yeah. data point, isn't it? It sure is. It sure is. You know, and, and it, not, not to, not to diminish the people who've lost their life because if that's your loved one, it's significant. But what I'm saying is, is, I, you know, it, if you just look at the data, we've done an excellent job of getting out in front of this thing, which makes me hopeful, you know, yes. that we reacted soon enough and strong enough, but at some point, you're going to have to go back out into the world or you're going to stay at home the rest of your life. Right. And, and, uh, well, at least for me, it links back to what you said this earlier in this conversation that, you know, we're all pretty much all predictably the same when things are going great and we're happy and we're fulfilled in some way. We humans show up. It's in these moments of uncertainty or stress or overwhelm or rapid change right? where parts of us really shine. And what my experience has been is that, you know, in a situation like this, you know, the, the hopeful people get hopeful, the scared people get scared, the angry people get angry, the, the people who want to serve, serve. Yeah. And these yeah. situations really just bring out a core part of our belief about who we are and how what the world is around us. I agree with you. I was asked by a client a couple of weeks ago to give a talk on leading in uncertain times. That was the that was the title they asked me to build my presentation off of. And one of the first things I said is, you know, the title of the talk is leading in uncertain times. And I said, but let me ask you a question. When, when, when have times ever been certain? In other words, when, when has there been a time in your life where you knew for certain what was going to happen next? Of course, the answer is never, right? 
the reality is all all times are uncertain or future the future has always been uncertain in other words we've never known the future and you're never going to right so these are not uncertain times because the future has always been uncertain so certainty doesn't come from what's happening in the world your sense of certainty or assuredness comes from your own belief system of Absolutely. what you think about you in the world, not about what's happening. That's right. right? Because some people, uh, you know, there are some business leaders I've read about or spoken to in the last couple of weeks, and you know, they're seeing this as opportunity. They're looking for opportunities where other business oh, there's going to be are yeah, focusing on there's going to be people who are going to make you know great strides during this time. That's right. And there's That's other right. people that are going to go out of business. That's right. Um, I can I can tell you this. I think that you know, in my generation, the word work was tied to location or destination. Like people would use the language, "I'm going to work." Right. So work was a place that you went to. What's happening now is people are realizing that work is primarily an activity, and in our service economy, you can work from pretty much anywhere. Right. That's right. And so the the this whole sense of going to work is is going to be replaced by working right and working remotely um, and so we're taking two things that were coupled you know work along with a location and now that that's being uncoupled and so people realize that work really has little to do with where you are and that that I, that will be forever changed there's a lot of guys that are and women that are of my generation that are running companies and they feel very strongly everyone should come into the office every day right and now what's going to happen is they've got this two-month experiment of people not coming into the office and not only do things go well but they're going to find that some people are even more productive and now they're going to be challenged to take a look at that yeah and i think uh, as business you know certainly a lot of businesses are going to be you know have to take some some different measures whether the whole economy is going in a certain direction or their industry, whatever it may be. But I think mm -hmm. a lot of the things that we've talked about here absolutely show up. It's what are your core beliefs? Is the, do you believe the future and you are going to be okay? And if there is some failure along the way, what's the fastest, quickest things you need to learn? And what is your, you know, your metaphorical, like Kobe Bryant and so many other athletes, what's your metaphorical film room? that you need to go and quickly review or you're get out there on the back mm -hmm. on the court, like Larry bird and yeah. practice and practice and practice before you, uh, before you turn your attention to less important things at this time. You know, so, the, the thing that, the thing that I, that I hope for, for people is that I hope that my hope is that everyone would have at least one other person who would be truthful and transparent with them. Right. Mm -hmm and tell them the truth i mean if there's if there's one thing that you can have in your life that would be probably more beneficial than anyone else is to have another person in your life that loves you enough to tell you the truth mm -hmm. right including the truth that you don't want to hear and if you don't have that person in your life do everything that you can to cultivate it and it starts by simply saying to the other person I really want you to tell me what you really think, right? Um, because you can't you can't see your own face, but everybody else can, and it's and it's kind of the same with your mind. There's just, you know, there's things about yourself that you 
you can or don't see very clearly, but other people can. Now the question is, do they feel safe in sharing that, you know, and disclosing that to you? And I think it's important that we, that we ask, you know, yes, people around us to, to tell me how I'm showing up. Which also links to the power of the power of coaching or having a mentor. And sometimes that, that person is your loved one, your spouse, uh, business partner and sometimes you need someone really independent to give you that fresh perspective uh, yeah my experience has been and i've had a chance to work with some really good athletes and the best athletes that i've you know who've had the most success in their sport have also been the most coachable yes and what i mean coachable is really just curious you know they want to they want to know what you think about it they're really good listeners there are other athletes i work with that are very talented but they never really got as far because they they were really invested in kind of knowing it all and already having it figured out. And so they had a hard time being curious and opening mm -hmm. themselves up to a alternative perspective. If that makes yes. any sense. It, it definitely does. It definitely does. And uh, I have to say, I really appreciate your perspective that you've been sharing with us here. And, and uh, I know that there are many listeners listening to this who are going to interrogate some of their own belief and really kind of, either look at themselves in the mirror or ask someone else to shine back to them how they've been showing up. Cause I think everything that you've said has been spot on. And I appreciate all the wisdom that you share before I ask the final question, where can people learn more about your work, Dr. Stan, or get in touch with you? So I have a, I have a, a, a webpage, drstanbeecham.com. Beecham is B E E C H A M drstanbeecham.com. And then the, the book that I wrote elite minds, uh, that's a that's available on Amazon with everything else in the universe. And there's some other, you know, websites that have it, but Amazon is the easiest um, if you're interested in taking a look at the book. Um, but that's the best way to track me down. That's great. Well, I highly recommend the book, uh, Elite Minds, to everyone who's listening. It's uh, back to some of the themes you talked about here. The, the simplicity that you really speak the truth on is... Um, it comes out very, very loud and clear. And I think every, mm. every chapter has uh, some great nuggets in there that anyone can learn. Thank uh, you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. The, the final question I have for your time on the doc, on the, uh, on the ignition show, Dr. Stan, what do you hope to ignite in the world? Well, I think curiosity, mm. you know, I think about this a lot. I think about, you know, having them, you know, the, the, the mind of a beginner or the mind of a child, Right. And and just staying curious, I think of the the uh, Albert Einstein quote, I'm going to get it wrong. But basically he was someone was asking him about why is he so, in, you know, what why is he so intelligent? And he basically said, I don't think I'm really intelligent. I'm curious. Yeah. And so I, I really have thought about that, about the importance of staying curious, starting with myself. Right. Uh, being you know, no matter what age you are, being curious about yourself. Why do I do the things that I do? Why am I good at what am I good at? Why am I not good at these things? And really seeking it deeply. And I think when you do that, the, the truth will be revealed to you if, if you seek it sincerely. So just a curiosity about oneself and then taking that into being curious about other people. Uh, I mean, we, we, we know that we have really strong biases about other people, right? Uh, I mean, the word prejudice to, pre to prejudge, we all prejudge, 
right? But we all have different biases. And to be uh, and develop consciousness of what are your biases? Why do you like the things you like and don't like the things that you don't like? You know, what's that, what's that all about? Just staying curious about that, I think. Because out of the curiosity, that's where the growth and that's where the learning and the knowledge is going to come. Um, and then I think the other the other thing is, um, I think my work changed pretty significantly when I realized that my job is to help other people do their job, or my job is to help other people be successful, right? To not make myself mm-hmm. successful, but to make other people successful, or yeah. to not do my job but help other people do their job. And so when I you know, work with leaders, you know, that's the main thing I want to get to understand is that their job is to help their people do their job. And so once you really realize that, um, that you can't be successful in a vacuum, you only can be successful to the degree to which you can help other people be successful. It really changes the way people go about, you know, their work and what they do. And so I think that's the main thing I would kind of want to ignite in people is that, that curiosity, but then also that realization that, you know, your job is to help other people do their job. Well, I love that. And clearly you are a, a role model for curiosity, the work that you've done, the, the, the continuous pursuit of why we do what we do and how can we do it more? Or how can we overcome some of our old obstacles and your curiosity to continue to share that with people and share it with the world? Uh, I appreciate you, Dr. Stan, for your time here, but I appreciate you more so for who you are and the impact you're having. And um, thank you very much for your time here today and uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Well, thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Thanks. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Stan Beecham, sports psychology consultant and author of Elite Minds, How Winners Think Differently to Create a Competitive Edge and Maximize Success. You can find all the links in our show notes. We want you to get the most of the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learned, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned and found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect and let us know what struck you. What was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments or follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, that's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or our website and respond to as many people as we can. And remember, whatever you dream of, Whatever you hope for and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.